don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. We're going to be on page 1037 this morning. The book of Ephesians. Chapter 4. As always, um, we are uh, we, we want to interact with the text, uh, not just as I monologue to you. I mean, that's a big part of what we're doing this morning, but, but as we dialogue together. So if there's any questions you have about what we read or talk about, feel free to text them. You can text them anonymously to our text number, and I will interact with them um, after we're done this morning. We've been talking for since the beginning of the year, just kind of reorienting ourselves around who we are as Christians, who we are as Revelation Church. We said kind of our primary idea for existence is this, this phrase, God is not hidden. We believe that God reveals himself to people, that he is a God that is pursuing people. And because of that, we get the privilege of knowing Jesus and then also making him known to others. We said that there's some realities about this relationship that we have with God as Christians. We're adopted by the Father. We've been birthed into this new family called the church. We're loyal to the Son. Our primary allegiance as Christians is to Jesus Christ above any other and we're empowered by the Spirit. We are, we are filled with the third person of the Trinity, God himself, the Holy Spirit, and we are given supernatural character called the fruit of the Spirit and supernatural giftings for the common good of the body of Christ. And, and these things that are just true, if you're a Christian here this morning, these are true about you. And then we shifted over to the other banner and we said, but there are also things that, that Jesus, because he is shaping us into the image of Christ, into his own image, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there are things that we are becoming. And we are people who are becoming, uh, we are becoming people who, who live in communion with God. We said we are becoming people who submit to scripture humbly. We walk in honesty and authenticity and we steward with generosity. And I've used this Henry Nouwen quote every week. Where he says, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. We've been adopted and pledged our allegiance and empowered by God into the body of Christ, into the family of God, into the church. And now we get to pursue Jesus together and become these things that he already has said that we are. And so today we're going to talk about becoming people who pursue unity. So what is unity? Unity is being together, being in agreement, on the same page, moving in the same direction, a group of people organized around commonality of some kind. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul says, "Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Paul says, therefore, uh, this, is, this is an old, an, uh, an old pastoral quip if you've been in church for a long time, but when you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. And, and why is Paul saying therefore at the beginning of chapter four? Because of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and we don't have time this morning to go through all of the glorious things we read about in Ephesians one through three, but it's pretty amazing Paul says that God, through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, has created this thing called the church, and it's made up of these broken, sinful people saved by God's grace through faith 
And these people, they're natural enemies of each other. In, in his day, it was Jews and Gentiles. In our day, it's various different cultural beliefs and political opinions and, and, and socioeconomic statuses. And these people, they have nothing in common but Christ. And they're brought together under the gospel into this new radical community. And they even become this marvelous witness to the powers and principalities in heaven that the power of God is at work in the world. So because of all of that, Paul says, therefore, because of this community that God has created in Christ, Paul's going to urge us to do something. And he says, please, he says, I beg you, I implore you, live lives that are worthy of the calling you have received. So what is that calling? He's not talking specifically about like, I'm called to be a pastor or I'm called to be a boat mechanic or whatever. He says, he, the calling is you are the people of God. You've been called into the family of God. You've been rescued and remade into a holy temple for God's spirit. And the question for us this morning is, do we think of the church that way? Do we see this gathering of people that, that get together on Sundays and throughout the week and, 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 and go out for coffee together and, and have this common confession? Do you see us as this amazing, beautiful new community? John Stock calls it God's new society. Is church just, just a thing that you do, a habit that you have, or is this a radical new identity? This is what Paul is urging us toward, to be united so how are God's people united? The first thing that we want to take a look at is we are united by love. Look at Ephesians 4.2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility and gentleness. Humility is an inward perspective. Gentleness is an outward posture, and they go together. John Christostom, who is a pastor in the fourth century writes, how is it possible to walk worthy with humility? Meekness is the foundation of all virtue. If you are humble and are aware of your limits and remember how you were saved, you will take this recollection as the motive for every excellent moral behavior. You will not be excessively impressed with either chains or privileges. You will remember that all is of grace and so walk humbly with all humility, he says, not in words only or even in deeds, but more so in the very manner and tone of your voice. And not meek towards one person and rude toward another, but humble toward everyone, whether enemy or friend, great or small. Chrysostom is speaking out of a early Greek context. And the crazy thing about this is that humility and gentleness, while we understand them to be uh, really beautiful, good things, we have TV shows and songs and plays and, and all of this culture building up the idea of humility and gentleness. These were not virtues in Greek society. John Stott says the Greeks never used their word for humility in a context of approval still less of admiration. Instead, they meant it as an abject, servile, subservient attitude, the crouching submissiveness of a slave. Humility was an insult in the Greek world, and the church completely turned that upside down. They took a badge of shame, according to their culture, and because of Jesus and who he is, made it a badge of honor. Paul calls us to a way of life that, according to Stott again, recognizes the worth and value 
of other people. And this isn't in some like theoretical sense because we all kind of have this idea that like, yeah, people are valuable, but it plays out in our actions, in our words, and even as Chrysostom says, in the tone of our voice. What's the first thing that goes out the window in conflict? Our words, our tone, what we communicate with our eyes. See, Paul says that our unity is kept not just by a decision to be united, but by actions that communicate care for other people. He says we, we should have patience. Patience flows out of humility when I recognize that God is patient with me. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, but I receive mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul's story is one of, of just awful behavior, right? He, he persecutes the church. He has people murdered for the sake of following Jesus. And he's proud of it. And Jesus saves him and turns him around and makes him one of the greatest evangelists and church planners in the history of the church. And Paul says, look at, look at what Jesus did for me. Look at how patient he was with me. He, he let me be who I was my whole life until I spun out. He said, Paul, it's, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to push back against what I'm trying to do in you. But Jesus was patient with him. Paul says we should be patient with one another. But here's the thing. We all drive each other crazy, don't we? It's okay to admit that. The weird way that your spouse says that one word, the way your roommates load the dishwasher, the friend that you have that just can't get their life together, it would be easier to build a community around emotionally healthy, well-adjusted people without any hangups or addictions or distorted views of the gospel or bizarre beliefs about God. But that's not the community that God has created, is it? Jesus says in Matthew 9, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Church is a hospital. And unity is realized among us when I realize that I am the one that is sick. I am the one that Jesus is in the process of healing. Can you imagine being in a, I don't know if they, I haven't been in a hospital in a while. They won't let anyone in anymore. Um, unless, you know, you're sick. But sometimes they put two patients in the same room, right? Can you imagine being in the hospital, being in a bed, with somebody on the other side of the curtain and like mocking them for being in the hospital. What a loser, you're in the hospital. What happened to you? That's dumb. Like that's just foolishness. You're in the hospital too. Like for any of us to judge and condemn one another because of the brokenness in our lives betrays the fact that we don't see the brokenness in our own. Paul says, be patient with one another. He says, bearing with one another in love, bearing with one another. This is not just putting up with people, right? This is how the world defines tolerance. I don't like you. I disagree with you, but I have to put up with you, right? Because we all live in a society. But that's not what Paul is calling us to. 
Paul is calling us to receive one another, to hold each other up. He says to bear one another's burdens in another place. I was um, uh, getting dinner for my family uh, about a month ago at one of our favorite restaurants. I'm not going to tell you what restaurant it is. Um, But... It it was one of those fast, casual restaurants where you go in and then you order and you kind of go down the line and then you pay at the end. And I walked up to the front and it was obvious that the employees did not want me to be there. They were just like doing this and and like just, what do you want? And okay, and just like just actively pushing me out the door with their attitude and their actions and their eye rolling. They obviously hated their jobs. That's not what Paul's asking us to do with one another. Oh man, that guy. I hate it when that guy comes to church. He's so obnoxious. That's not what bearing with one another in love is. Conversely, when I was little, I used to, my family used to go to my Grammy's house. Um, my Grammy was a wonderful woman. I don't know. I don't know what her house was like all the time, but whenever we were there, there were cookies and cake and ice cream and fried chicken and biscuits and gravy. And I just assumed that like they were always there. Now that I'm older, I wonder if maybe she made them expecting our arrival. I don't know. I didn't know how this stuff worked when I was five. Uh, but, but she didn't have to do that. She didn't, we, we, would have, we wouldn't have noticed probably as, as, a, as a five-year-old and a, or a six-year-old and a three-year-old, my sister, we probably wouldn't have noticed that there were not those things if they just were absent. But she went out of her way to receive us into her home and provide us with these wonderful, joyful, loving experiences through food. She was bearing with us in love. So Paul says we're called to be united. We're called to be united by the way we love one another. But he also says we're called to be united by doctrine. Listen to verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And so for many of us, we're, we're asking the question, Paul, why didn't you start with that? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we start with doctrine, truth, purity? And this is important. We're going to talk about it, but it's not where Paul starts. Paul starts with love, and then he brings up truth. See, if, sometimes we get this idea that like, as long as we have the truth part figured out, the love part is optional. Like, the love part is nice. We all want to be loving people, but if, if something's got to fall, it's going to be the love part. We'll just, as long as we hold on to the truth part. But, but I don't think that's an accurate understanding of who we are as Christians, I think if the love part goes, the doctrine part doesn't really matter because we don't really believe the things in the truth part if we're not expressing the love part. So Paul starts with the love part and then he moves to the truth part. But what is this doctrine that he highlights as the source of our unity? The first piece is he says that there's one spirit and one Lord, that's Jesus, and one Father. So he, he sees our faith as worshiping a God that is one but three. 
We have a Trinitarian faith. And that's hard to understand. Like whenever we, we sit down and try to wrestle down what it means for the God, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to be all God but separate persons, I don't, I don't really get that. But that's the picture we get of God from Scripture. And so maybe you'd say, well, yeah, but why does that matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons that we're not going to get into today. But the question, why does it matter, is a really transactional question, isn't it? I've come to this church seeking religious goods and services. Who really cares what the God who is dispensing them is like? What does it matter that he's a trinity? Who cares that this is how he shows himself to be? Imagine that we're going to hang out and I'm going to go to McDonald's and get us some fish sandwiches because it's the best thing at McDonald's. And so I go through the drive-thru and order some fish sandwiches and I come to your house and I give you the fish sandwiches and you go, what was the girl in the drive-thru window like? I don't, I don't know. What a weird question. Who cares? Like, I was there for fish sandwiches, and I got the fish sandwiches, and I gave her my card, and I don't even know if it was a girl. Maybe it was a guy. Who knows? See, the transaction that's taking place, we don't care who's doing it. And if we're going to be people that, that go like, well, who cares what God is like? That's the same attitude, isn't it? I'm here to be blessed. I'm here to be comforted. I'm here because I like the music. I'm here because whatever. And the God that's really in the middle of it all, eh, he's, just, he's just taking my credit card. There's another example. There's a, imagine coming up, if, if, if I met you somewhere and, and, and you came up to me and you said, oh my gosh, I, I met your wife the other day. She's amazing. Just such a lovely woman and, and such beautiful, long, blonde hair and blue eyes. For those of you who know that know my wife, she does not have long, blonde hair and blue eyes. And I would go like, oh, I, I think you're mistaken. I don't think you met my wife. Oh, no, she, I did. She's great. Like, yeah, but, but that doesn't sound like my wife. You don't really know my wife, do you? See, the primary reason we should seek to understand the Trinity, the fact that we serve a God who is three in one, is that's what God is like. If we're, if we're people that are in relationship with the God of the universe and he has revealed himself a certain way to us, we should cherish the fact that we are just beginning to understand who he is because that's who he's shown himself to be. It's an act of love and relationship to get to know him. When Paul moves on, he says that there is one church, one body, one faith, one baptism, one father of all. The Christian church is united. John Stott again says, we must assert that there can only be one Christian family, only one Christian faith, hope, and baptism, and only one Christian body because there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply God's. Is there only one God? Then he has only one church. So for many of us, this, 
there's some dissonance here. Like, I'm pretty sure there's like another church across the street, actually. What does this mean? Remember the quote from Henry Nouwen, we are in the process of becoming who we are. So there's two ways that we get this wrong. The first way that we understand the unity of the church wrongly is that we assume that we are the one true church. Maybe Revelation Church, we figured it out, everybody else in town. Maybe it's Church Venture Northwest, the the covenant community of churches that we partner with throughout Washington and Oregon and Idaho. Like we're all together and we believe the same things and we love each other and all those other churches, they're, they're crazy. Or maybe it's just Protestants, right? Everybody who has a part of a church since 1517, we got it all figured out. The Catholics, the Orthodox, no. But the thing is, in my experience, the Spirit of God shows up at a lot of churches. Believers in Jesus They put their hope in the return of Christ. They pledge allegiance to him above all else. They're baptized and taught everything that Jesus commanded through the word. And they look a lot of different ways, but they all have the same flavor of Christ. See, we can't claim to be the only true church when the things that Paul says create our unity are present in many different churches. And the second way we get this wrong, though, is, is we don't say that we are the true church. We say that, well, there's just no true church, right? Any group of people that want to get together and call themselves a church, that's just fine. doesn't matter if they're worshiping the Trinitarian God revealed in Jesus. Who is the Jesus that they're worshiping? Well, maybe he's a, you know, some ascended master and reincarnated Hindu God or something. I don't know. doesn't matter. See, if, if a church is not following the Jesus who was a first century Jewish rabbi that was crucified by the Jewish leaders and the Romans and physically rose from the dead three days later, if that's not the Jesus that they're serving, then, then they, we can't affirm that they are part of the church. And in the cultural climate that we live in, like that's a, ugh, we don't like that. We don't like, to, we don't like to make barriers to people. We don't like in-group and out-group. We don't like to exclude But there, in some sense, if an organization is not lining up with what Paul says Christian unity is based on, then we are not united. So this is, this is unity. Love people and have the right doctrine. It's easy, right? Got this all figured out. <laughs> no. <laughs> Look at verse three. Paul says, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Notice this. We're not called to make unity. The Holy Spirit does that. But we are called to keep it. And over the course of Christian history, we have failed time and time again to keep the unity of the spirit. Sometimes there's selfishness and pride at the heart of our disunity. That's a lack of love. Sometimes there's a failure to hold to true doctrine. It's a lack of truth. Sometimes it's both. And this has happened literally thousands of times since the time of the apostles. 
And we, we look out and we recognize that the church is a mess because it's made up of people that are a mess. Maybe you've heard stories of, of a church that splits because they're picking out hymnals and they're the wrong color. We should have blue hymnals because of something. We should have red hymnals because of something else. And they fight and they break up. Or they're getting new carpet and we're spending too much money on the carpet or we're not getting nice enough carpet or whatever. I was reading a story about a split in the Orthodox Church hundreds of years ago where they do the sign of the cross. And there was a group that said that you need to hold three fingers together when you do the sign of the cross over yourself because that's, that represents the Trinity. Then there was another group that said, no, you need to do two fingers when you do the sign of the cross over yourself because that represents the divine and the human natures of Christ. And they fought about it and they warred about it and people got hurt and they split. And these things can sound so stupid, but they come from not walking in love and humility. The family tree of our church is, is littered with disunity. We are affiliated uh, as we're a Baptistic church. We come from the line of, of American, uh, of, of, of Baptist churches in the United States that began in Rhode Island. And the Baptists were formed in Rhode Island because they got kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony because they believed that the police officers shouldn't be allowed to arrest you if you don't obey the Sabbath. That there was a difference between church law and civil law. And so they got kicked out of the colony. So they had to go to Rhode Island and make their own colony. Rhode Island was the source of, of Baptist faith in America and kind of the foundation of religious liberty in the United States. But then later on, the Baptists started fighting about whether or not pastors and missionaries could own slaves. And some in the church said, yeah, it's fine. And some in the church said, no, it's not fine. It's actually sin. It's actually terrible and wrong and needs to be done away with. And so there's a split. The Southern Baptists went one way, the Northern Baptists went another way. And so our Northern Baptist ancestors went along for a little while and, until they started talking about whether or not their pastors and their missionaries actually had to believe the Bible. If you're going to be a leader in the Baptist church, do you have to believe that the Bible is the word of God? Do you have to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? Do you have to believe in the virgin birth? And some said, well, yes. And some said, no. And so we split again. And so now we're, we're a church in a, in, a, in a line of people who believed in the baptism of regenerate believers and believed in separation of church and state and believe that slavery is a terrible evil and believe in the authority of the Bible. And, and you get to hear, and it sounds like, well, good, we made all the right choices. We were, on all, we were on the right side of all of those splits. And I would say that I think that's true. I wouldn't be leading the church in this tradition if I didn't. But at the same time, it's, it's a terrible stain on the history of the church that we're constantly breaking apart even if sometimes that breaking seems to have to be necessary. Unity is hard work. There's a lot of disunity happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. 
Unfortunately, the churches in both of those countries, many of them are deeply embedded in the politics there. Um, and at least some of the conflict is, is tied up in the leadership of the church, especially in Russia. And yet, in the midst of all that, the good news of the gospel is shining forth. I just I read an article this week, and uh, Anatoly uh, Rechinets, which I'm sure I can't pronounce that correctly, from the Ukrainian Bible Society, says, we're speaking to our colleagues in Russia. We church leaders speak to one another, and we pray together. We are united in the Lord. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being Christians who are more united to our brothers and sisters in Christ than we are to our country of origin? Like, imagine if we went to war with Canada. I don't know why that would happen. Maple syrup or something, I don't know. Would we fight against our brothers and sisters because we are Americans, or would we prophetically denounce the actions of our nation because we are united with our fellow Christians? That's an active question for the Russian church right now. Do we stand up against evil, or do we go along with our civil leaders. See, if we're going to be united to our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's always going to cost us something. And that's why Paul says, make every effort. Unity is hard work. I want to give you a couple illustrations to kind of play around with. Um, these aren't perfect. They're, they're analogies. They all have holes but these come from uh, the work of Pastor Mike Erie. He talks about the, the idea of, of imagining a, a flock of sheep in a pasture. I have got a flock of sheep, and I want them to remain safe. I want them to remain in the pasture. And there are a couple ways I could do that. One way is I could build a fence. I could put all the sheep inside the fence and build a fence around the perimeter, keep all the sheep in the fence. Or what I could do is I could build a well. I could put life-giving water in the center of the pasture, and the only way the sheep are going to survive is if they go to the water. And I could organize the sheep around the well. And so for us as a church, the question I have is, are we a people that are oriented toward the life-giving water, toward the, the way, the truth, and the life? Now, we still have to define what the water is that we're drinking, and that's what Paul does. He says, there's one Lord and one baptism and one spirit. We have this God who we serve and this God-man, Jesus, who has come to save us. And there's very specific things about who he is and what he's done. You can be close to the well. You can be on a journey towards the water. But we all gather around the experience of that life-giving water. And that's important because real unity is an experience of the life-giving Christ. Affirming a doctrinal statement is not life-giving, right? I can, I can sign anything I want to. And doctrinal statements are good. We have one. But when we talk about doctrine, I want to point people to the healing water more than just to make sure they're inside the fence. In fact, it's really easy to be in the fence. You can take a dead sheep and throw it over the fence and it's inside the fence. Another illustration that he uses is 
is a game of soccer. I know we're, we're in America, and I don't, we don't know what soccer is, but unless we've been watching Ted Lasso, I guess. We could start a soccer league. We could say, we're going to get together and play soccer. There's going to be tryouts. There's going to be expectations about the quality of equipment, what kind of shoes you have, the uniforms you wear, the schedules, ticket sales, marketing, all that stuff. It's going to be a big deal. We're going to be very united, but we're also going to be very exclusive. Or we could just say, hey, let's just go down to the park and anyone that wants to come play can come play. Now, the reality of the second example is that we are still playing soccer. If you come to the park and pick up the ball and try to throw it through one of the hoops, you're not playing the game we're playing. We're playing soccer, not basketball. And if you don't know how to play soccer, you're welcome. We would love to teach you how to play soccer. But anybody that wants to come play the game can come play the game. And so when we talk about love and doctrine, we, we need to take a look at the truth of the gospel and say, this, this is the game we're playing. This is the life we're living. This is the people that we are becoming. But we also have to be careful not to put up so many barriers that people who want to play the game with us can't get in. So how does this work as we close in, in practical ways at our church? First off, we're not putting up a lot of fences. We talked about this when we talked about being submitted to Scripture humbly, but there's just a lot of doctrine that we're not going to separate over. Maybe we disagree. Maybe we even argue about it. But there are things that are not a threat to our unity. Sometimes people come and they visit our church and they, they want to pull me aside and talk to me and they want me to join whatever fight they're passionate about. Sometimes it's a Bible fight. Maybe it's Calvinism or the end of the world or uh, baptism or whatever. And they're just, this is their thing. And they want me to be on their thing. And if I'm not, then it's not going to work. Or maybe it's a political fight. They've got, they've got a party or a candidate and they're like, you guys need to, you need to get on the bandwagon of this political group and be about it. Or maybe it's a cultural fight. They've got like, we ought to boycott Disney or whatever. I don't know. That was a long time ago. Everybody's got Disney Plus now. It's fine. But the thing is, I'm not interested. There are many of us that land in a lot of different places when it comes to a lot of different issues. And the thing that I have come to believe is that's a good thing. Because just like in the first century, when Paul wrote a letter to Ephesus and said, the Jews and the Gentiles who are natural enemies of each other and don't talk to each other and don't hang out with each other and don't eat with each other are now in the same room worshiping the savior of the world together as equals, that's what brings glory to God. And when we can be a group of people that have all of our opinions, and I, I have plenty, I know some of you have plenty, and we can talk about those opinions, and we can work through those opinions, but those opinions about whatever they are are not going to take the place of the unity we have in Christ. I think that brings glory to the gospel. 
I think that brings glory to Jesus. So we're not going to put up a lot of fences. But number two, we're going to clarify the well through our membership process. We, if you're, if you're connected to this body, we would encourage you to become a member of our church. And if you become a member of our church or want to pursue that, you'll recognize that we have a statement of faith, which is a truth statement. It defines the water in the well that we're drinking from. Who is God? How does he save us? What does it look like to be a Christian in the world? And we have a membership covenant that defines the relationship we have with one another. It's a love statement. And we take that seriously. It matters to us that those of us that call ourselves family here understand what we are becoming a part of. And anyone is free to come be a part of our meetings or join a community group and explore faith and hold any number of ideas about God walking towards the well in the center of the pasture. But when it comes to saying, okay, what exactly is the water that we are drinking? What exactly is the game we are playing? We believe that those things should be clear. And if you read our doctrinal statement, our our public doctrinal statement is the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. We have official documents in our our bylaws because the state makes us have bylaws that's a little more modern sounding. But the truth that we hold to I want it to be as broad as it can be and be faithful to Jesus. And if you come in here and, and you've got a understanding of how the world is going to end that's different than my understanding, like let's, let's talk about it if you're into that. If you've got an understanding about how exactly God saves people, does, does regeneration come first or does faith come first? And, and in the mind of God and eternity past, what went on and who are the elect? And there's a thousand questions there. Like, great, let's talk about that. But who is Jesus? And how does he make you new? Those are the questions that bind us together. And thirdly, we work with other churches. Sometimes we partner with lots of very different churches for like a food drive or in the support of a nonprofit. Love Inc. is a great example of an organization that many different churches in our community participate with for the sake of the gospel. And we don't agree in every respect with all of these groups, but it doesn't bother us. More often we partner with churches like Doxa and Transform and All of Life to worship together to learn from each other. Mostly because, not because we share more doctrinal connection, but because we share a philosophy of ministry and a spirit of love with one another. See, there's a lot of opportunity to pursue unity when we are committed to drinking from the same well and not necessarily needing to put up the same fence. And so as people committed to the good news that Jesus Christ is king and that he has come to defeat death and sin and bring us new life by his Holy Spirit, we are becoming people who pursue unity. And this is difficult work. It's a work that requires both a strong commitment to the truth 
and a strong commitment to love and humility. But I think the diversity that we have in our congregation is a testament to the saving power of Jesus and our desire to be faithful to him and his body over and above our differences. Amen? Okay. Anybody have any questions? Nothing on the phone. Anybody want to raise their hand and ask a question? All right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Isn't it a beautiful book? Yeah. 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 Hey, and we, the reason we have those books is we were given a, a case of them. So after that great promotion, if anybody doesn't have a copy, I have like 15 more copies in my office. So come see me. I'll give you one. It's a beautiful book. Thank you. All right, friends. <laughs> we're going to take communion. <laughs> The thing is, one of the ways that the church talks about unity is through the word communion, right? We'll, we'll, we'll hear that this group has communion with that group, and it means these churches work together. Or on the other side, this person was excommunicated from the church, which means they're not allowed to take communion. And as Christians this morning, the idea that we would share the bread and the cup is a central expression of our unity, On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he passed it around and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant. He said, take this and drink it. And then he said, I'm not going to drink it with you until I return, but do it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to sing some more. Um, the band's going to come back up, and I'm going to invite you to come and, and get the bread and the cup. We have wine or juice, per your conscience sake. Take it back to your seat and just reflect on this, this person, Jesus, the Messiah, the one that unites us that we are given new life through his name, that he is the well that we drink from. And think about the connection that you have to these people in the room. And if you're not a Christian this morning, just know that that this um, activity that we do, this expression of our connection with Jesus is profoundly powerful. And it's an expression of allegiance to the Son of God. And I would invite you to become a Christian this morning and and take it with us. But ponder as you take the bread and the cup, the connection you have to the Christians in this room, the connection that you have to the Christians in the churches all around this city, the connections that you have to the Christians in Ukraine and Russia and Poland and England and Australia and South Africa and Egypt all over the world. 
who gather together around the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus week after week after week to affirm that they are united in one body. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.